Wait, do you even know as an Israeli who moved here late in life, do you know what mountain range you're in? Are you in the Catskills, the Pocados, the Adirondacks? Do you have any idea where you are? I know exactly where I am, but I'm keeping my my location secret. (laughs) This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And editor-at-large, very large, Leah Leibowitz. Shalom to all. This week, we bring you a conversation with Israeli musician, comedian, and actor Yair Nitzani. It was recorded a ways back, before lots of stuff had happened in the world. And we also bring you an interview that Stephanie did with Nama Sheffi from the Jewish Food Society and with Josh Russ Topper and Nikki Russ Fetterman of the Russ and Daughters Appetizing Food Empire on the work that they're doing feeding hospital workers during the pandemic. So two oh-so-sweet interviews. Um, So, friends, it has been a tough week for all of us in America, including the three of us, and and of course, um, a lot of pain for some more than others, but everyone's at least feeling what's going on. And we talked a lot about what we're going to do for our show this week. Last week, we had already scheduled a week off, and and we sort of, you know, did our best to spend time with our families and and reflect. And this week, I think we really just wanted to get back to the essence of the podcast, which was always that we were going to share with our listeners whether five of them showed up or many thousands. And we didn't know what it was going to be five years ago when we started this thing. We were always going to share with our listeners the conversations that we were actually having. And honestly, the conversation that the three of us need to have this week is one where we try to forget about uh, the troubles of the world and just try to get each other to laugh a little bit. And uh, obviously, there are lots of meaningful places you can go for deeper, more thoughtful dialogue, including Tablet Magazine. And TabletMag.com has been doing a lot of really, really interesting work about current events. But here on the podcast... We want to um, talk about the perfidy of Belgium and talk about Jewish food and talk about our kids. So there we have it. And we hope that you're along for the ride. Uh, Liel, you've decamped from the city with your family entirely, right? You're no, you're no longer uh, broadcasting from Leibowitz Upper West Side, are from you? Le- Leibowshire Manor. Uh, no, the the moment uh, our beloved Camp Satoga uh, had sadly announced that it was closing we decamped for the green acres of upstate New York. And and here's the thing, you know, I've only lived in two places my entire life. I've lived in Tel Aviv and I've lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So the entire drive up here, I'm having this moment, like I'm going to a place where there are probably no Jews. And it's going to be really weird because, you know, I'm I'm a pretty big Jew. I'm pretty public about it. I pray three times a day. I keep kosher. I wonder, you know, how I would find myself and, and how the locals will find me. And so we get to this amazing house that we're renting, and the landlord is the sweetest man on earth, and he's great, and he's explaining to us all about, you know, the property and the deer and the rabbits and the wildlife and everything. And then just as he's about to finish, like, oh, and by the way, over there yonder is where the chuppah stood at my... <laughs> daughter's wedding and by the way the rabbi was and then he names the rabbi he's like do you know him and of course i knew him <laughs> and then i go to town and and there's this big sign you know that simply says mechanic and i'm thinking to myself this is gonna be great because i'm gonna walk in and it's gonna be this guy in like filthy blue overalls and dueling banjos will be playing in the background. So wait, so wait, your idea of of America, even just 50 miles outside New York City, is, is a mix of the Beverly Hillbillies and Deliverance. And that's Deliverance. Like, and so something that's... called Overalls. <laughs> in my paranoid mind, that is precisely correct. Uh, I walk into the mechanic, who of course is a, say it with me now, Lubavitcher. A Jewish? He's a Lubavitch Hasid. <laughs> <laughs> No. It's like, shalom, the bagel place down the block has the best challah. I was like, oh my God, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. The yeah, only is there thing- a part of you that wanted a break, break from us, from the jail? You know, there was, there was a part of me that thought like, I will be like the cool kid in town because like, hey everybody, like 
My church is different. You heard about Judaism? Right. Like you thought that at the local Greasy Spoon Diner where the regulars stop in every morning for their corned beef hash, they mm-hmm. were going to say, did you hear that a Hebrew rented the old McGillicuddy place? Exactly right. <laughs> Meanwhile, the old Greasy Spoon in town is like, do you want kasha varnish guess with that? Because literally everyone here is a Jew. Although I will say this. Um, the local supermarket, which is huge and beautiful and well-stocked, sells precisely one kosher product. Could you guess what the one kosher product, meat product, sold by the local supermarket is? Hebrew Nash. Yeah, I'm with Stephanie. Hebrew National Hot Dogs. Uh, as far as I could tell, that is not the product you could get. The only product you could get is Empire Chicken Bologna. I don't even know what that is. That's literally a deep cut. <laughs> Which I think tells you that there's a really special kind of Jew that lives out here. It's a more rustic Jew. Oh, my. I will venture the idea that maybe you didn't go far enough outside New York City. Like, <laughs> like if you want, I'll come pick you up and we'll keep driving north toward, say, Plattsburgh. And we'll find a town where <laughs> the local mechanic is not a Lubavitcher Hasid. It can I, be done. I actually... You know what? I don't think there's a town in America where the local mechanic isn't the Chabad. That's actually a really smart double business. They like they run the local Chabad and they fix your car. We actually have a Lubavitcher mechanic in New Haven as well. This is a thing. One more and it's a trend. This is a thing. Your soul and your carburetor. And do you feel they service the moving trucks owned by the Israelis? (laughs) (laughs) Like at this point, really, I, I feel like it's like in the Matrix, like. The, the thing has been pulled off, and like I understand that everyone in the world is actually secretly Jewish. Secretly and Jewish. I can't escape this. Stephanie, uh, you actually have stayed in the city, right? I am still in my closet. The door is not fully closed, so everyone in this apartment can hear what I'm saying. Um, most specifically, the cat, who I have to tell you, after like six years of acting out, is really acting out. Um, and I know these are dark times, and I was just wondering, I just like, have, we've had a lot of issues. Like for an animal who's never had like litter issues, we never had to deal with anything. It was always like he knew exactly where to go, exactly what to do. He has not been doing such a great job with that lately. And I was a little concerned because I sort of thought, oh God, am I going to have to bring him to the vet? Because that just seems like getting him to the vet is a nightmare. Everything is so much more complicated. Obviously, you can't go in. They sort of they do like a curbside pickup. Um, so I called the vet and I sort of explained what was going on. I was like, we've had a few incidents. Here's what's been going on. And the vet says, well, has anything changed in his life recently? And I was like, <laughs> I don't know. Is the entire world different? Yes. Right. Is like, Wait, but all that's changed in the cat's life is he's seeing so much more of you guys. Oh, yeah. He actually, he doesn't understand, you know, everything that's going on around him. But I thought at the beginning that he would like spending time with us. And But basically what the vet said, he's like, you know, we're seeing a lot of pets exhibiting symptoms of stress. And I was like, you are joking me. Like now on top of everything, on top of like all of our mental health, like we have to, I have to worry about the cat being stressed because I'm home. I'm like, you know what, cat? You're like a real, it's a, just messing with my mind. So you can say these things because you have cat lover street cred, but, um, you know, we have two dogs and a cat and the cat just poops where he shouldn't, excuse me, she, uh, runs in fear whenever she sees me, like Brings nothing to the table. But I guess there are good cats. You don't have one and I don't have one. But there are people whose cats are wonderful. Just curl up in their laps, nurture them. Mark, I love the way you put it. Brings nothing to the table. Brings <laughs> nothing to Like, Very you know what, cat? You have your annual performance review. Like, we don't think you're doing very <laughs> You're well. not getting your bonus this year. Not earning her keep. Not getting her Shavuos bonus. Um, but other than that, all is just, just keeping on keeping on, Stephanie, right? Just sitting here in the closet, just another podcast. Um, I do have to say, like, I do miss you two. Like, we haven't seen each other in IRL in a long time. And it made me – I thought about it this morning and it made me sad, which I was sort of surprised by. And then I vowed to myself never to repeat that. And here I am telling you that. (laughs) I always had that routine on Tuesday mornings where I'd get up at 5 a.m., catch the 5.30 train, you know, get to the city, um, grab a coffee, sometimes pick up a coffee for one or both of you and and get to the studio – and it was an insane routine and I was tired all day and, but I miss it terribly. I mean, it was, it was a day of, you know, it was my New York day. I often would have lunch with someone afterwards. I'd see everyone at tablet and I'd see Paul at Argo studios. And I just, let me tell you that Sid doesn't want me to tell her this because she said, stop talking about it. I know you'll go to the movies when you're allowed to, but stop stressing me out by talking about how much you're going to go to the movies when you're allowed to. And 
because our governor in Connecticut has said, I think it's June, I forget if it's 20th or whatever, sometime in in the horizon that we can see, we can go to the movies again. And you miss it so much, you'll, you'll even pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas everyone else in the universe is like, I am never going to a movie theater again. You're like, get me back there. Which is great. I'll be there by myself. Inside the house, though, uh, things are good. Things are good here. Um, you know, our cat is no better than ever. Our kids are every bit as good as ever. Um, Anna is working on her penmanship because I realized that was a way in which our homeschooling could uh, improve on what any kid is getting because they don't do penmanship anymore. Um, Clara finished her novel about the Everbee orphans. You know, one of the things going on here is they don't think I'm a real writer. You know this, right? Because I've mentioned this because I do nonfiction. And they don't think that's writing. It's not that they don't believe you like have a job that doesn't involve them. It's that they don't believe nonfiction is real. Like that's such the like most precocious, obnoxious distinction that is like, I love it, that only it, it, your kids would have. It's right. Only my kids have it. And it's amazing. They're snobs. It's, it's they're entire they're totally snobs. And so Clara has been working daily. I mean, she has so much more industry than I do on this novel about the Everbee orphans who are absorbed into a painting. It's a sort of magical realist thing. They get sucked into a painting on their wall. Well, one of them gets sucked in and then the other eight have to follow to rescue the little one, Debbie, who's sucked in. It's it's brilliant. And um it's called The Peculiar Painting. And, you know, according to her, she has now finished a book and I've never finished a book because I've only done nonfiction. So no respect, <laughs> no respect around here. But, Tough times you know. in the Oppenheimer house. Turning to the news of the Jews, Austria, always on the cutting edge of inter-ethnic relations, has unveiled a design to turn Adolf Hitler's old house into a police station. They're going to convert the building where the Nazi leader was born into a police house, and it will cost about 5 million euros. They hope to complete it in 2022. They actually cut their budget. I think it initially was supposed to be $6 million. (laughs) Oh. oh, oh, sorry. Are we not going there? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's these weird fixations with like the homes of horrible people. Like the idea that this was Hitler's like childhood home. This is where evil, pure evil was spawned. And you're like, okay, let's just forget that. Maybe, I don't know. There's so many places that like become like neo-Nazi pl- points because they used to be this or used to be that. Um, so I guess it's smart that it's going to be a police department. So when like the neo-Nazis come to like lay their like 420 wreaths or whatever they do on Hitler's birthday, like, it'll be a police station. See, like it would have been much funnier, according to that logic, to make it into like a kosher restaurant. Yeah, come, come lay a wreath at like Goldberg and Sons. You jest. But according to The Guardian, the relatively modest three-level building was rented by Austria's interior ministry since 1972 to prevent its misuse, and it was sublet to various charitable organizations. It stood empty after a care center for adults with disabilities moved out in 2011. I dare say that renting it out to a group of people whom the Nazis wanted to euthanize was a, a a rather elegant fuck you to its legacy. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I still don't think I'd want to be there or go there for anything. Like, they were like, this is the new JCC. I'd be like, I'll take a pass. I'll find a gym right. elsewhere. I'm just enough of a sicko that I would join that JCC. Like, if I <laughs> if I knew that I could now play squash and then schwitz in... You know, my memories... See, in uh, the Springfield-Longmeadow border... In the 01108 growing up, like the JCC, you know, we had a membership and that was our Jewish communal organization was the JCC. You could play basketball with, you know, with the homies, with Fred Sokol and Charles Kitchener and those guys with the older men. And you could go swimming. And Derek and I would just bike over there practically every Sunday and just swipe our card in and then do whatever you wanted. You could play ping pong. You could play basketball. And the memory of getting out of the pool and then sitting in the men's locker room with all the old guys who didn't put their towels on. Like there's just naked old guys there, just elderly testicles everywhere. And all of the locker room talk, it was either sports or as men fetching about their wives. Or It was such a such a window into like what we might become someday. See, this is what you want in Hitler's boyhood home. Yeah, you exactly. Want old just Jewish testicles <laughs> all over the place. It's exactly what I'm going for. It's like there'd be just no better <laughs> repost to our to our oppression than having it be the place where Jews can literally let it all hang out. <laughs> 
But look, that's not all of the news of the Jews this week. Also in Central Europe, uh, Auschwitz has let it be known that visitors <laughs> to <laughs> to its grounds, uh, tourists, will have to be disinfected at a sanitation gate to help stem the coronavirus. As, as soon as they step off the train. Jewish news watchers everywhere just paused and said, okay. The idea of being like... I don't want to say deloused, but like, like there's the, the there was a thing that happened. Like it's just, just a little close to home and a little on the nose. I know it's like it's really well meaning, but you're like, oh, read the room, Auschwitz. right, guys? <laughs> Stephanie, could you could you lighten our burden a little bit with some I don't know some news from the animal world? Um, sure. On theme for the day, I'm excited to share this headline: Hitler's alligator dies at 84. So um, apparently Saturn is this alligator who, first of all, 84 is very old for an alligator. I had no idea alligators. They, like, they go like 50, 60, I think. I've, I've read a lot about alligators this week. Um, so he was gifted to the Berlin Zoo in 1936. This was, was the gator who would live for a thousand years. <laughs> um, he he was born in the U.S., but he was in Berlin, obviously, in the 30s. But he So he escaped when the, the zoo was bombed in 1943, and he like was missing for three years. Then he went to the Soviet Union. <laughs> And he's been in the Moscow Zoo ever since. There's this question of like, where was he for those three years? And what was he doing? Anyway, people think he, so like, there's just like this lore that started that he was like Hitler's alligator. I heard that he went to Palestine and, and fought for the Stern Gang or the Irgun. He like, didn't he help liberate Palestine for the Jews? Because of what he did. Yeah, he was very remorseful. <laughs> um, I have to say, so the zoo released a statement when they announced the the death and and they had to add this caveat that, Animals are not involved in war and politics, and it is absurd to blame them for human sins. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, you're, you're already an alligator. Like, everyone kind of exactly. hates you. You're terrifying. And people are like, you know, hey, see, see Saturn over there? He was Hitler's. <laughs> like, well, if anything I mean, could be worse for an alligator. Hold on. Do you, you think, think that was alligator. his rep in the zoo? Or, like, was he, like, a little bit of a badass? Like, yo, don't, don't cross Saturn. Don't you cross know, Saturn. He was Hitler's alligator. <laughs> I mean, the idea that anyone would think we would blame the alligator for Nazism when clearly we're blaming this house in Austria because had Hitler grown up in a different house, the Jews would have would never have been killed. I mean, and we're had not, what... someone had the chance to go back in time, what would they have done? <laughs> would they have killed baby Hitler? And to this we say, Auf Wiedersehen. See you later, alligator. heard about the Jewish Food Society from us. We had Nama Sheffi and Amanda Dell on, I think, last year to talk about this great organization. Um, and since the COVID pandemic, they've really, really shifted gears and they are helping a lot of local Jewish restaurants to mobilize and make meals for healthcare workers. And so it's this amazing program that they have spearheaded. And uh, one of the great restaurants that is involved is Russ and Daughters, which is, of course, the iconic Lower East Side appetizing joint. And I got to sit down with Nama, as well as Josh Russ Tupper and Nikki Russ Fetterman, the fourth generation owners of Russ and Dutters. We're here today to talk about how the three of you have really shifted gears and, and how you've been responding to the pandemic and helping healthcare workers on the front lines. So Nama, you've shifted gears completely. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing uh, coordinating meals from various New York City restaurants? Sure. When it was clear that restaurants would be hugely impacted by the pandemic, we knew we had to do something. And we knew we had to support this community of restaurants. Because for us, Russ and daughters, you are active carriers of our culinary DNA. So with the very generous support of the Paul Isinger Foundation, as well as, by the way, hundreds and hundreds of individual donations. We raised funds to provide, by now, more than 80,000 meals that we source from our community of restaurants and delivering to hospital to health workers on the front lines. So Nikki and Josh, how is that shift done logistically um, on your end? You know, the first month, I'd say, of the pandemic, we were just in 
crisis mode. We were in a free fall like every other restaurant and small business. And, you know, we went from being a fourth generation family business where we make decisions around the next hundred years. All of a sudden, we were trying to make decisions, starting to look at how many months we had left before Rust Daughters would be done for. When things calmed down a bit, I knew that I wanted Rust Daughters to be able to do the work on the front lines, assisting, feeding the healthcare workers. And so it was very fortuitous that just at the point where we're starting to get into a little bit of some semblance of a new normal, NAMA and Jewish Food Society came to us to team up. And it was brilliant because it gave us the support that we needed to make this a part of our day. In fact, we just came back from doing a delivery to Montefiore Hospital up in the Bronx. You know, we've been working, we've been coming to work every single day during this crisis. Our staff have been incredible, the ones that we're able to keep. And as good of a feeling as it is to be able to send Russ and Daughters out to all of our customers, it feels really good to send our food to the front lines. And it reinforces for us that what we're doing is essential so that they can do their essential work. What something like this has taught us as a business is the ability to be dynamic in how we operate. And I think it's a very important lesson, obviously, and it will make us stronger in the long run. But for all of these restaurants to be able to change the idea of what we're doing and make a couple hundred meals a day for healthcare workers or just shift all of our business to as much shipping as possible and close the retail and close the restaurants and how to employ people. So I'm curious what the response has been from the healthcare workers. I mean, you it sounds like you're doing some of the deliveries yourselves. I mean, how do those stories and those reactions, how does that sort of help you throughout the day? It helps a great deal. I, I know, uh, not recently, but for a while now, Nikki actually asked our social media person to do a daily rundown of accolades, the, the posts from people getting Russ and Daughters and appreciating Russ and Daughters. And it really brightens our days and our staff's days. And we you know, hand that out to people to read. We want to make people happy. But in this time, it's extra important to know the impact we're having on everyone that, that is getting this food. It, it means a lot and it keeps us going. I think that there's something happening more broadly right now where food is is a comfort to people, right? It's not just how they're going to survive the day. I mean, I'm thinking about all the people who are learning to bake challah and all the people who, you know, suddenly maybe do like a Friday night dinner just to, to make the day a little different. The food is the great connector and it's always been for us at Russ and Daughters. But with all restaurants closed and the meeting places where you gather and around food not able to be open, there's a renewed appreciation of getting these foods and enjoying these foods and sort of wanting to share them, even if you're on a Zoom call eating the same foods. I, I hear a lot of people doing like dinner parties where they cook something and deliver it to five of their friends and they all get on the phone or on a Zoom and enjoy it together. Well, I want to thank you all for the work that you are doing for feeding the frontline workers. Nama Sheffi of the Jewish Food Society. Our listeners can check out more about your work at jewishfoodsociety.org. Nikki Russ Fetterman, Josh Russ Topper of Russ and Daughters. Everyone can order their own care packages for yourself or for loved ones at russanddaughters.com. Thank you all for, for taking some time to chat with me today. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox. We got lots of great mail this past week, especially responding to our letter writer who said, I'm about to convert. I need to pick a Hebrew name. What should I pick? Lots of you are entranced by that question. And one of you sent in this letter. Hello, Unorthodox. Here's my twist. I am non-binary and I'm trying to find just the right Hebrew name that isn't really female and isn't really male. Do you or any of the J crew have any ideas for me? Well, I'd say that the last 15 years in Israeli culture really have all been like one big experiment and like non-gendering names. Cause like all the names that used to be very traditionally either just a girl's name or a boy's name have just completely now become cross-gendered. Shy, Gal, Yuval, like there are a million names that are now just adopted by by everyone, which is kind of cool. By the way, I love Shy. That's a gift. I mean, that's such a, that's so meaningful. I really like that one. But what you're saying is just you can actually pick anything given the conventions of current Israeli naming. Pretty much. I mean, Shlomo is probably still a little (laughs) bit beyond the pale, but like everything else is up for grabs. Even by the way, I'm sorry, Liel, most other Liels you would find are women. The first Liel I met, she might be listening to this right now. She was Liel Krampus and she was from Texas and she's Jewish and she was in Kappa. Whoa. So my modest proposal is for everyone to change their name to Liel. To Liel. Maybe it's one of those things like a confirmation name. Like when you get to a certain age and pass a certain test, you get your Liel. Like Liel becomes your middle name. (laughs) You have to earn your Liel. Anyway, Laurel, it sounds like what Liel's saying is uh, the field is wide open, but probably don't choose a name that's a character in scripture who's highly identified with a particular gender. But pretty much everything post-scriptural, the rules are gone. And Laurel, your name already starts with an L. Come on now. So I also think we should put this to the J Crew because I think people will write yeah. in with really good suggestions. 914-570-4869. Dear favorite podcasters. By the way, that is our favorite salutation. Dear favorite podcasters. We we want that's great. Good one. This letter could be telling us like they hate our show. <laughs> and it wouldn't Thank matter. Thank you so much for keeping us informed and entertained in these crazy times. First, let's clear things up. Top sheet? Yes. Foil or plastic wrap? How about option number 3? Reusing coleslaw tubs from the deli. <laughs> Okay, so this person has been deeply involved in all the important debates over the past five years. But then we get to the meat of the letter. I listened to the discussion about the conservative decision to permit Shabbat service streaming with interest, partly because my own conservative synagogue has said nothing about it yet. But I think you took some cheap shots at conservative Judaism, suggesting it's filled with people who want to pretend they're Orthodox but still eat bacon. Yes, I'm sure there's some people who fit that bill. There are also people who just can't find an Orthodox egalitarian synagogue, although they do exist, or they live too far away to walk to an Orthodox synagogue, or who are traditionally observant but don't like the reasoning that the Orthodox community uses to support certain practices. Please don't write off so much the community as being hypocritical or imposters. It's easy to assume that there's a linear path from self-described reform all the way to Orthodox, and that simplifies too much. Stay well, Jordana Schmear. Okay, this letter clearly aimed like a dagger straight to my hypocritical heart. (laughs) And I was the one, I think, who was talking a lot about this decision in the conservative movement. I want to say that you actually nailed it. You actually stated much more clearly, Jordana, something I was trying to say in my ham-fisted way, which is, if I were to go back and say it again, that conservative Judaism is, in fact, all of these different things, right? There are people who are reform-practicing, 
but like a more traditional service. So they don't keep kosher and they don't have a Shabbat observance practice, but they really like conservative services. That's one kind. There's a million kinds under the sun. But actually the people I have in mind are the people you're talking about, which is people, and our synagogue has a lot of them here in New Haven, who are kind of orthodox in practice. Let's say Shomer Shabbos. Let's say they don't want to work or use electricity on Shabbat. But they're in a conservative synagogue often because they are gender egalitarian. Or maybe they they themselves are queer and they want a place that they feel is more accepting of who they are than the orthodox synagogues. So my point really, if I were to get into the nub of it, and thank you for helping me make this point, is imagine the orthodox practicing lesbian who is in a conservative synagogue because it's gender politics or sexuality politics give her more dignity. But she still wants a practice that is very, very observant of Shabbat. If the conservative movement starts using Zoom and this and that and musical instrument, if it basically becomes reform with respect to all those things, we have sold out that community of people for whom conservative Judaism is the only place they can be observant in their way and still have the dignity that they feel it gives them. That's one of the things conservative Judaism does, and that's one reason why we should have certain practices that reform, with all of its wisdom, doesn't have. Leal and Stephanie, do you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah, I also want to respond to something else that Jordana mentioned, which is the coleslaw tubs from the deli. And I will say that my mother-in-law recently gifted us with this like really fresh watermelon that she had. And it came in like a quart-sized container that was labeled chopped chicken liver. <laughs> and I was like, what? She's racially profiling you. <laughs> when you see the watermelon, it's just amazing. It's amazing. It makes it taste even better. Yeah, it gives it an umami flavor. <laughs> Friends, we have several requests of you. Keep sending us your fabulous letters, unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Call them in as voicemails, 914-570-4869. We're going to put up a little video going forward of us recording this show. Uh, Go to Tablet's YouTube channel uh, to see some more of that. And with all of these things, please remember to share us and click on us and rate us on iTunes and all the stuff that helps get the word out during a time when, uh, you know, people might have some time to listen to stuff. So, you know, guys, we've had a lot of super cool people on the show. We've had a lot of famous people on the show. But I don't think we've had a guest on the show yet that has made eight-year-old me as excited as this next guy. Because my entire childhood, this was the man. This is Israel's, you know, John Bon Jovi and Weird Al Yankovic, like, rolled into one. He's an amazing musician, comedian, screenwriter, actor... Uh, And, you know, I got a bit fanboyish sitting and talking to him, but I think you love him and I think you love his incredible music. I love that so much of this podcast is Liel just like fulfilling childhood dreams. Yeah, that's what we're here for. It gives me immense pleasure. To say shalom to Yair Nitzani. Shalom, shalom. How are you? I can't believe you're sitting right oh, here. Oh, this is a great honor for me too. For those of our listeners who are only now having the good fortune of discovering you, you really are one of the greatest musicians in Israeli history behind the tremendous rock group Tislam, comedian, record label genius who discovered some of my absolute favorite bands. I've been watching you live every chance I got since I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight. And it always occurred to me that there was something weird about it because here you are on stage and Tislam, probably the first great Israeli rock band. So you're on stage, tens of thousands of screaming fans, and then you go home. But you don't go home to some Hollywood mansion where like hundreds of assistants will get you your latte and take care of everything. You go home to some apartment in Tel Aviv, you wake up in the morning. And then you have to come out into the street, do your shopping, and like see us. What is it like being an Israeli rock star, a rock star in such a small country? Is it so weird? Oh, yeah, it is. The difference between what you think about rock musicians in the world, in America probably, and in Israel, is that to go and to put the garbage out in your flat in Tel Aviv. And you go with the with the garbage with a smelly bag, bag with dripping the, with, yeah. with the watermelon juice yeah. dripping on your feet yeah. and. <laughs> and you're that guy from, you know, that band, and everybody's supposed to know you and admire you, and you're 
so connected with reality and the day-to-day of everybody else like yourself. And I remember one day after a show in the 80s, I didn't have enough money for a car. So I had a moped. The show was amazing, you know, thousands of people shouting and everything. And then I go out, I put my helmet on, and I drive my scooter around the venue. I see those two guys who just came out of the show in a flashy BMW. And they look at me and says, <laughs> no, this couldn't be possible. Right. This guy? I just saw him on stage. So this was the only country in the world where Mick Jagger takes a moped home <laughs> and his fans are driving in a fancy car. Yeah, but it's also nice, you know. It's down to earth. You always tend to think, you know, if, if your career would be somewhere else and not in this small country, what would happen? But, you know, that's what it is. There's also the flip side to this, right? Because if your career was somewhere like here, there's probably a good chance of you getting into the slump of, well, I'm, I wrote one great album because I was a young, struggling musician. Now I have millions of dollars and people to do my bidding. And so when I try to write music, it's just not interesting anymore. Whereas you guys really incredibly, consistently wrote terrific stuff throughout decades and decades and decades that managed to feel relevant at every turn, maybe in part because you had to take that moped home. I think so. I think it's the hunger, the hunger that we have and probably other people don't have. On the other hand, you know, look at people like Robert Plant or Tom Petty and people like that who wrote songs in their 60s, which were amazing. And they were already millionaires and well off and everything. So... Maybe there's no connection. So maybe a few million dollars would have been nice just to have yeah, around, yeah, just lying around. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's let's take it all the way to the beginning. Both of your parents are immigrants from Europe. Yeah. Right? You, your father is an important chemist. They're both academics, right? Mm-hmm. How big was the heartbreak when you told your parents, like, I don't think I'm going to be a lawyer or a doctor. I think I'm going to be a rock star. I have to say that my parents were pretty supportive. I was in music when I was a kid, and I was in comedy when I was a kid, so it was pretty obvious that this is the way I'm going to go. My career started actually in America. After high school, I went to Hollywood to be a coffee boy in a recording studio. I wanted to learn recording and production, and I was accepted with a friend of mine to a recording studio in Hollywood called TTG. TTG was a legendary recording studio, Uh, who recorded The Doors Mm -hmm. and uh, Hendrix and people like that. I was a coffee boy and I was a second engineer and stuff like that. That's how I started my professional music career. After TTG, I went to the army and I was accepted to Galei Tzahal, the radio station of of, uh, the Israeli army. Which for our listeners, really the only game in town, right? It is the radio station everyone listens to. The coolest, yeah. The coolest. So now, legend has it that T-Slam got its start when one night, illicitly, you and a friend used studio time and the fact that no one was around at three in the morning or whatever to let in this guy named Danny Bassan, who would become the lead singer of the band, to just record a few demos. Is this true? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it was one demo. We went into the A studio in Galeitzal in Jaffa. Two young boys, Izar Ashdot, mm-hmm. who is a famous musician and mm-hmm. a member of Tislam and, and my buddy, and me. I was a recording engineer. He was a musical editor in the station. We were very friendly, and we were talking about music all day. And we wrote the stupid song called Give Me, Give Me Rock and Roll. It was in the middle of the disco era. We wrote the lyrics and we started playing with some synthesizers. It's We're talking about 78. We're calling this friend of ours, Danny, and he comes over. He's a singer in the army band, whatever <laughs> it's called, La Hakat He comes in and This is about as rock and roll it. as you could be. Three and young soldiers exactly. recording a... In the morning, we had the song and it was cute. And then we decided to go record it somewhere else in a professional studio and the rest is history, actually. So when you begin this thing with T-Slum, t- tell me about the moment in which you knew 
this was a sea change because up until that moment, you didn't really have rock stars. You had some artists in the 60s who were influenced by whatever was going on abroad, but they were still very much Israeli. They were Israeli singers, parts of Israeli culture. They were rooted in the here and now. And you guys come along and you sound like you could be in Berlin, you could be in London, you could be in New York, you could be anywhere. What does that moment look and feel like for you? First of all, there were two other bands before us that I have to mention. One was Kaveret, mm-hmm. Pugi, right. which was an amazing group of people who played rock music in a diff- in different way. They were like good boys right, and very, very talented. And they sounded like, in a way, the Allman Brothers, the voices and the guitars right. and everything. And there was also Tammuz, which was a very big rock band. It was an influence to us. The difference was that we were thinking international. We wanted to sound like British or an American band, and we didn't know how to play so well. We weren't so great musicians, but we knew a lot about studio. We were thinking so international that we brought over from the States a friend of ours who was a recording engineer, Jonathan Porat. And after we finished recording and we already had a record deal, we forced the label to mix the album in America. We went to Cherokee Studios, the biggest studio in the 70s, with Alice Cooper and Tom Petty and the Cars in the same room with us. And we mixed it there. And all this made us sound different. And in, in Israel time, 1980... You come with this bang sound, it was unstoppable. I mean, you had a naked woman on the cover of your album. Mm-hmm. It's completely unheard of. In your mind, are you thinking, well, I'm doing this because this is only the first stop and next thing we're just going to go to America? Are you doing it because you're thinking it's time to change this provincial little place? What is it that you think you're trying to achieve as you're blowing everything up like this? I'm not sure we knew what we were doing. We were just very influenced by international music, and we thought that enough with this, you know, Israeli... Kibbutz music. Exactly. We came on stage with the energy to kill. We had in our minds Queen and Alice Cooper Mm -hmm. and Led Zeppelin, and we played loud and we were energetic. And to be honest, it's the same till today. But in the last 20 years, we're playing at least one concert a week. The band, as all great rock and roll bands must at some point do, decides to take the sort of break. Uh, And you go on and you do other things. Now, in every other rock biography that usually that is a story of, you know, like the sort of behind the music, where are they now? And Yaeli Tani is, you know, serving coffee and some cafe. Instead, you did two things that ended up being as successful and influential in the local cultural scene, maybe as the first act was. The first is that you, you become a record label guy and you sign up. I can't even begin. Chavarim Shem Natasha is you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I was involved uh, deeply in the Ofra Chaza international career. Right. I started the whole uh, remixes thing of Yemenite music in dance style. You, two seconds ago, were the guy on the stage. Two seconds ago, you were the guy everyone was trying to touch. And now you have to be the suit who is giving all the love to these mm-hmm. young people who are now receiving all this. It strikes me that it takes a really special kind of person to be able to really make this move without saying like, this should be me. There was that conflict and uh, it stayed with me all the time. But I love music. I love creating music. I love producing. I love finding talent. And I love promoting good things that I, I think should be promoted. So when you were at the record company, was there some kind of guiding philosophy behind your work? Did you say, well, you know, the sound I'm looking for is X or the type of artist I want to promote is Y? Or did you just go with whoever sounded good and then try to unlock whatever it is that they had to offer? Well, in those days, the record company was not so successful. And we were like a surviving record label when I joined. The record industry was trying to survive. When you were in a record label and things are not so easy, you search for the big hit. You look for something that will make the company survive. So there's not much of a philosophy behind you. You have your taste. You have what is happening outside, 
And you know, the music that comes to you, the mix of the three of those is the decision that you make in the end. So the mix of the three of those is what made you Mr. You know, Hollywood, I'm in the same booth as the Cars and Alice Cooper, listen to this Yemenite girl with an incredible voice who represented a very different sensibility than, you know, kind of Western rock and say like, hey, that's incredible. She's going to be a big star one day. And then what I do is I bring my own influence and I tell her, if you want to promote this Yemenite album, you have to twist it a bit. We're talking about 1984. I'm saying to her and her manager, let's remix it. And they tell me, what is a remix? And I tell them, it's it's like, you know, we'll take it to the studio, we'll up-tempo it, we'll play with the tracks, we'll put some scratching on, some sampling that was mm-hmm. very new then, right. and we'll do a new version. Right. And this new version might work for us on the radio, which it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Really? It didn't. And then the guy comes from the pirate radio station of A.B. Natan, a radio station that this gentleman, A.B. Nathan, broadcast out of a boat outside Israel's territorial waters so as not to comply with all Rules. the regulations. Yeah. yeah, and he was he was calling it the voice of peace. And they spoke in English. And one of the DJs, a British guy, came over to me one day, and he came to my office and he said, I love this remix that you did with Ofor Haza. Can I have a few copies to send to my friends in England? He sent it to England, and after a few weeks we get requests to buy the record from all over Europe because the friends that he has were from BBC and Capital Radio. And then Imni Nalu becomes this huge international... That's the second single. The first was Gaubi, which started the interest. And then Imni Nalu was released after Eric B. and Rakim Mm -hmm. sampled Ofra Mm -hmm. on their song Paid in Full. Mm -hmm. And the rest is history. (laughs) And if that weren't enough, you then also, I don't want to say dabbled in, uh, but kind of influenced and, and reshaped Israeli comedy. You recorded a, a host of songs. One was this amazing character, Hashem Tamid. Mm-hmm. Tell us about him. I'm in the record company. I'm already general manager or something. And there's two other guys who are more psycho than me. It's Erez Tal and Avri Gilad, two young soldiers who has this show called Mayesh, a daily comedy show on the IDF. And they call me in and say, we love your head and you know your ideas. Let's, let's do a few characters. And one of them is called Hashem Tamid. He's an Arab, an Israeli Arab, who's totally right-wing. And he loves Israel. And he hates the enemies. <laughs> Something very strange. And the character, it's a secret. Nobody knows who's behind the character. Right. I'm recording it in my studio, in my office every day. They're sending me a, a girl soldier with a re- cassette recording uh, machine, <laughs> and we're recording it in my office, locking the door right. that nobody comes in and sees me doing this character. And, and then she runs back to the studio to, to edit it. And it becomes so popular that the army is stopping all the work at three o'clock every afternoon. After a year or two, I, you know, I decided this is this has to be an album. So I go in the studio, I write this song about Hashem Tamid, and I'm in love with this new thing called rap. So I write it in rap because I'm also not a big singer, you know. <laughs> It's the first rap song in Hebrew, and it's totally non-politically correct. You know, you, a song like that in these days, they will kill me. That's right. Now, that would never get on the radio today. But it is hilarious, because as you said, he's a very traditional, reads like every bit right-wing conservative Jew, uh-huh. except for he's Hashem. Yeah. The success was huge. We sold, I think, triple platinum. Right. And you mentioned Ahmed Erdogan before. The Head Outsea Records, the, the label that I was working for, represented Atlantic Records. Mm-hmm. And one day we get this call. The switchboard lady says, I don't know, there's a guy called Ahmed on the phone. <laughs> and I don't know who had the nerve to, to pick up the phone and say, you know, is this Mr. Erdogan? This just for people who don't follow music history understand. This is the record label executive who discovered 
ev- everyone on earth, basically every band From that Marita you... From Marita to Zeppelin right. to the Stones. Everyone. And here he walks into your he office. He walks to our office. <laughs> we sit with him for three, four hours. He's telling us stories and about Zeppelin and everything in Ramat Gan. And we're eating burekas. <laughs> and, in the end, and in the end of, the, of this meeting, he says, well, guys, I need to go to Jerusalem. Uh, can you get me a taxi? And I said to him, Mr. Erdogan, I will take you. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to have an hour with this guy alone in the car. And I had a Subaru, which was so small. <laughs> this guy only drives limos. And the wipers didn't work, and it was raining. So we're driving in the car on our way to Jerusalem, and I'm shaking from excitement with this guy. And we're talking about Led Zeppelin, and I'm asking him about Jimmy Page and why didn't he release his records on Atlantic, and he went to Geffen and stuff like that. And every junction... There's people shouting in my window, Hashem, 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 <laughs> because I have a number one song. Right. So Mr. Erdogan saying to me, tell me, Ayer, what is happening outside? Right. Who are those people? So I'm telling him, you know, Mr. Erdogan, besides my record job, I released this album, you know, and it's a big success. It's now a platinum and, you know, those people, they know me. So he says to me, so why do you work in the label? <laughs> you know, Sydney, you know, it's uh, a small country. Welcome to Israel. <laughs> we became very friendly. It was one of the greatest friendships that I ever had. You also had a career on TV, because of course. Tell us about Machorea Chadashot, behind the news. Yeah, it's actually sort of Achorea Chadashot, right? which, which means... Which is the behind, the, the of, behind the news, right? of the news. The news is ass. Exactly. Yeah. This was a weekly show, uh, very uh, influenced by John Stewart. Mm-hmm. They also came to see us once, and they, when they heard the budget of this, the show, they right. didn't believe it. Uh, that's, that's, our, that's our bagel budget. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, there was one thing actually in English that we did, uh, which I very much like. It was a sketch called The Strange Workers. As you probably know, in Israel, there's a lot of people coming from all kinds of countries to work in Israel, from Philippines, Africa, China, etc., and we decided to host three foreign workers every week. And I was explaining to them in English, in my broken English, main issues of Israeli day-to-day right. behavior. Uh, and one of them was uh, the, the, what we call the, the, the problem with the Jewish people. Uh, and I said to them, you know, there's three kinds of Jews. There's simple Jew like me, medium Jew, and very, very Jew. Right. Super Jew. Super Jew. The, 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 the simple Jew like me, I don't wear a kippah on the head. The medium Jews had a knitted kippah, mm-hmm. and they stick it on the head with a pin, a special pin. Mm-hmm. to stick it to the head, so it's good that I'm not a medium Jew because the wind would blow the knitted right. kippah off my head. The very, very Jew has a black hat with a dead cat around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I explained to them, <laughs> if, if, if you, one of them is from Africa, I said, if, if you want to become Jewish, you have to first become very, very Jewish, yeah. and only after, when the rabbis are not looking, you, you can, can be, be regular simple Jew. Jewish. <laughs> but this doesn't stop here. You have also, and excuse me, to cut your penis. Yeah. Not all of it, just a small piece. Unless you have a big penis, no. then you have to cut a bigger piece, because yeah. we in Israel, we want to be all one size. Because right, it's proportionally. <laughs> Um, <laughs> they love that. Th- this is because in Israel, we say all Israel are friends. Mm-hmm. And that is why we also all go to the army to protect each other. Except the very, very Jews, they don't go because they study the Bible very hard every day. And that is why God protects us. And that is why also nothing bad ever happens here in Israel. Oh, and never happened to the Jews. Exactly. All of Jewish history was very calm. Exactly. So when you look at Israeli music, Israeli culture now, very much a scene that you helped create. Do you like it? Are you weirded out by it? It's much more Eastern-facing than Western-facing. Uh, a lot of it is connected to, yeah, I don't want to say religious texts, but more traditional directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have artists like Yishai Ribo now who are, you know, Haredi singers, mm-hmm. which would, would have been unthinkable for a guy like me watching Tislam that a Haredi guy would be a pop star. Are you intrigued by that? Are you weirded out by it? Does it feel to you like just the evolution of what you started or a whole departure from it? Where are we? In every style of music, there's good and bad. Some of it I like. 
and some of it I don't. I have no problem with any music today. I like what we've done. I like others, and I like what people are doing today. There's so many talented people doing great stuff. Some of it I like, some of it I don't. I like Guy Mezik, I think he's a great musician. I like Tuna, I like uh, Nechi Nech, I like Dudu Tassa. I love Dudu Tassa. I think he's doing an amazing job with his music. But, but do you feel a, a sort of sea change? Because I have a really strong memory of myself standing outside. Our high school had this like little corner where everyone would go to smoke and the cool kids would hang. And I have this really strong image of like standing there with my yellow Sony Walkman, listening to Radio Chazak, and feeling like if I close my eyes just hard enough, it's Berlin out there, right? It's London. I'm cool. I'm not here anymore. And I think kids listening to Israeli music today, that's very much Israel. It sounds very much Mediterranean. Do you feel that this sort of burst outwards, the sort of idea that you could connect with the rest of the world... Is this over, or was it just a, an important part in the evolution? What you did with Tislam is open up the floodgates, and then outside the West could come into Israel. When you were a kid, there was no internet, there was no cable TV, there was no MTV. And my kids There's now... There's only Tislam. And, for, and, and for, for you, Tislam was the gate to the world. My daughters, they have any music that they want all over the world. They listen to any new single released by any artist in any country they wish. They can see the video, they can see uh, the website, they can go to the Instagram page, they can, they can have anything. Is that good or bad? I think it's good. I think uh, they have no complex being Israeli, being far away, being remote. They're open to the world. And the music today, the Israeli music today is very influenced by music from the world also. When you hear girls like Noah Kier, uh, you can hear a production that sounds like... Any Ariana Grande. Exactly, yeah. And I think it's good. We have her, and we have rappers, and we have hip-hop, and we have Eastern, and we have rock. Yeah, Nitsani, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you very much. She cracks it up so she's having a ball Mazel tovs. We have uh, an abundance of mazel this week. I'll kick us off. I want to give a mazel tov shout out that came in from Susie. This is to Ellie Beer, Jordan Geller, and Zach Schnitzer, who graduated from high school and are off to college equipped with their Jewish education from Talmud Torah and the newish Jewish encyclopedia, our book. Woohoo! Mazel tov to them, and can't wait to see where it takes you. Leo, do you, want, do you have a mazel tov for us? Yeah, I would like to offer mazel tov to everyone at the Heschel School which like all schools in America did the absolute best that they could in this strange, tumultuous time. And to everyone out there uh, sitting out, uh, missing out in summer camp, trying to do their best with the next, you know, eight or, or nine weeks, we're here for you. We're here with you and we feel you. We hear for you. Amen. A mazel tov from Sebastian Glussman. Sebastian writes a mazel tov to Sylvie, who is 18 years old and a fan of this podcast and is graduating. She started listening to the show last year and went back to the first episodes. She attends an Episcopal school in Virginia, but she is a Jewish saint. So Sylvie, mazel tov on your graduation. And I have a few personal shout outs. My best friend Kat's mother, Nydia O'Neill's friend, Cindy Jackowitz listens to this podcast. And Nidhi got to tell her that she's known me for quite some time. Her daughter, Hillary, apparently uses our show in her Hebrew school class. So that is really exciting, too. Um, and then I also got to shout out the OG, Cecile Rothhaus. Her birthday is this Sunday. Grandma Seal, I love you so, so much. Oh, mazel tov. We all love Grandma Seal. Oh, she's, yeah. kind of, she's kind of all of Who our doesn't? grandma. Yeah. Um, a farewell to Ellen Oland, who was a fan of our show and the mother of my high school friend, Jordy, whom I saw out at our Arizona live show. I knew Ellen when I was 15 or 16 years old because, again, I went to school with her son. 
and then I got to reconnect with her because she wrote to us and came to our live show in New York and has just been a great fan. She died recently far too young. Uh, she was an incredible mom and grandma and wife, an amazing woman. She met her husband, Mark, who survives her at summer camp, Camp Kiyuma in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. She was 11 years old and Mark was 12. They were truly the loves of each other's lives, married for almost 50 years, and Ellen Oland will be missed. We dedicate this episode to you. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts, unorthodox at tabletmag.com, or call us, 914-570-4869. Our newsletter keeps on trucking. Sign up for it at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. If you want some unorthodox swag to wear in your quarantined state, lots of sweats, lots of comfies, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod, on Instagram at unorthodox podcast, and go find us on YouTube with Tablet Magazine. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger, and filling in for Esther is Kurt Hoffman. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme and assorted other musical tidbits are by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Chai Levy at Netivot Shalom in Berkeley, California. And we miss Argo Studios so, 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 so much. And in the meantime, come to you from our basements and assorted safe houses. Shalom, friends. This is weird. We took a dark week and we are making it darker. I love, by the way, that that we we set out to find like we set out to find like good, happy, feel good stories, and literally came back with like Hitler, Hitler, Auschwitz, Hitler.